Support for WERU comes from the Abbey Museum, Maine's first Smithsonian affiliate, founded in 1928 at Sir de Mon Spring in Acadia National Park, and open year-round in downtown Bar Harbor with two locations and one mission to inspire new learning about the Wabanaki nations with every visit. More information at abbeymuseum.org. It's 9.59 and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Wabanaki Windows with your host Donna Loring is up next. Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host Donna Loring. Webinaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Webinaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Uh, today, uh, I'm going to welcome back William S. Yellowrobe Jr., who is a renowned Native playwright. Uh, we last had him on the show um, in January of 2012. That was quite a long time ago, so we've got some things to catch up with him on, uh, but first I would, I'm going to uh, re- reread a bio of his. This is sort of like a, it's an old bio, and I'm no, I know, Billy, I'm, you're going to add to it, but I'll just, I'll just throw this out. It's uh, uh, William S. Yellowrobe Jr. is an Assiniboine playwright, director, poet, actor, writer, and educator from the Fort Peck Indian Reservation located in northeastern Montana. He is presently an adjunct faculty member in the English department at the University of Maine and a faculty affiliate of the Creative Writing Department at the University of Montana in Missoula, Montana. He and Dr. Marco Lukens, University of Maine, have completed the book, Grandchildren of the Buffalo Soldiers and Other Untold Stories, a collaboration of Bill's full-length plays. His other book, and probably books by now, uh, <clears throat> were the, Where the Pavement Ends. It's a collection of uh, his one-act plays was published uh, in early 2000, 2001. He's a member of the Penumbra Theater Company of St. Paul, Minnesota, Ensemble Studio Theater in New York, and a board of advisor for Red Eagle Soaring Theater Company, a native youth uh, theater company of Seattle, Washington. And I could go on and on, but I'll, I'll stop there. So, uh, Bill, welcome to the show again. Thank you, Donna. Thank you for having me. It's been a good day so far. <laughs> Let's keep it going. <laughs> yeah, right. um, so it, it's been a while, and um, I think we talked to last time you were on, we talked about your... Uh, your play, Grandchildren of the Buffalo Soldiers. Right. And there was a show that was going to happen in the Smithsonian. Yeah, the, it was a, a presentation at the Smithsonian Institution. We did, when we did Grandchildren of the Buffalo Soldiers, we did a tour of the country. That was with uh, Penumbra Theater Company and Trinity Rep, uh, Lou Bellamy directing and artistic director of uh, Penumbra, Oscar Eustace of Trinity Rep, who's now moved on to the public. We did a tour, and we did one show, or at least three shows, at the Smithsonian National Museum of the American Indian. And then later they remounted the production at the National Museum of the American Indian. 
uh, Vinnie Scott was the man who organized it and directed the play, so I was very honored. It was where I received the American Achievers Award, Native American Achievers Award. It was a nice little presentation. It was... Uh, I, the, it was also the, at the time my first brush with death. <laughs> first, okay. <laughs> yeah, what happened was that in I was at Brigham and Women Hospital, Brigham in in Boston. I had a heart failure, heart congestion, and they put a stent in, and I was supposed to get the award at the beginning of that month, and that's when I became ill. So they canceled it, and Oscar was going to present the award to me. And two weeks later, I went to Washington, D.C. I don't know how I had the strength to do it, but I got on the bus, on the train, went to D.C., saw the production. And when I come, when I returned to uh, Old Town, or we were living in, on French Island at that time, I w had a chance to heal. And that's the way my life has been going so far is I'm having the mileage that is now keeping you know catching up with me whereas when i was young i would never consider these things as dangerous now as i get older it's like yeah it's a different reality it's a much different reality yeah well you've had some challenges <laughs> particularly most recently yeah i mean uh, i mean even at the beginning of this year i i got uh, gangrene in my foot and through diabetes and gangrene i lost my leg and my right foot ironically I also had four publications that came it's out. It's funny, but you know, time. they say that with adversity, you, <laughs> yeah. you, you do your best writing. Right. <laughs> so I had, uh, later this month, I have a, there's a book called uh, Best American Short Plays, and my short play called Making Indians is in that collection. And then there's a book out of New York called Create, Create or Creativity by Randall uh, Ronald Rand, which features all theater artists and movie uh, people doing interviews that he did, and I'm in the collection. So I was wow. really honored by that. Yeah, I mean, you, uh, this uh, uh, grandchildren of the Buffalo Soldiers, it seems like that's taken on a life of its own, sort of. I think uh, it, you, there's another uh, production of it or something else coming up? Or? Well, no, we, uh, right now I have a new one act play called One Foot In. Okay. which deals with blood quantum, about a man who was a racist in this world. He goes to heaven and they tell him because he's had diabetes and lost his foot, he can't come into heaven because he's no longer a full blood. <laughs> and, <they> get, <laughs> and it's a comedy and they give him a chance to enter. They and say, who said you didn't have a sense of humor? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's amazing because then they give him a chance. They say, well, you could wear either this buffalo paw or this duck bill, <laughs> this duck <laughs> Or this chicken claw to get in. It'll make you a full blood, and you're able to get in. So he chooses the buffalo hoof to get in. Uh, that goes up in Minneapolis at the Native American, New Native American Short One Act uh, Festival Theater. And then I have a reading of two plays that I did here. Uh, Woodbones, which was presented at uh, the University of Maine's, uh, I think it's Students Performing Arts uh, spa. I can't. I, I can't remember the name yeah. of it either. But oh, School yeah. of Performing Arts. Excuse me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> School of Performing Arts. We did Woodbonds last November before I became ill, and that'll be read at the Seventh Generation Theater Festival in Washington D.C. along with Woodbones, which is a play that we did here in May. 
we did a reading of that stage reading of it. So, yeah, I've been able to get uh, things going. But I think the most important thing I've learned through that process is how frail life is. And once you get a chance to live again, you have to take life and make the best of it as you can and appreciate life. Appreciate your friends and relatives and appreciate things around you because it can be taken away. And with the loss of uh, my right leg or part of my right leg, I realize now that I miss accessibility. That's what I miss is having that freedom of being able to get up in the morning, go into a shower by myself, go outside, uh, and I can't do it now. I depend on people to help me. Hmm. Um, the, uh, the, the, the Woodbones play that you wrote, no, this, there's uh, some people that didn't quite get it. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm, I'm wondering, Bill, if you might be able to explain a little bit about that play. I... Well, basically what it is is that all living things, all things are alive in the Native community. Everything has a life. There was a question from Penobscot people on Facebook that I got a kick out of, which was, is mud alive? And, you know, more so than Donald Trump. But, yeah, mud is, is mud alive. alive? Where yeah, did that come from? Yeah, yeah, does mud have a soul? Is it alive? And I said, yes, more so than Donald Trump. But, yeah, it is alive. And in, one tw- in Woodbones, we have a house, but it's not so much primarily the house. It's the ground. Huh. 121 is a spirit of place. All these families that lived in this house created this energy, this spirit. They made contributions. They took away. But they created this living entity. And this character, Leroy Jones, comes along and basically recognizes the spirit where no one else can see it. And he gives it its freedom after the destruction of the house. He allows that spirit to continue on in its life and its process. And that's what people can understand. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I you know I watched it and I, I thought I could, I got the spirit part. I got mm-hmm. the the part you know that uh, Sierra, uh, played. Yeah, Sierra Crosby. Yeah, she did a really great oh, yeah. job yeah. with that. Uh, but anyway, that's the play that is going to be. Um, in DC. Yes, in DC. Yeah. Okay, and they're reading. It's a reading. Yes, it's a reading. And then you said there was another play that you did that's going to be read too? Yeah, that well actually it's going to be a, a, a full production that's called One Foot In. One One Foot In and it's at the New Native Theater uh, theater company in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The artistic director is Rihanna Yazi. Hmm. I worked with Rihanna for many years. Uh, last summer Rihanna took my play Sneaky to Standing Rock and performed it out there with the protesters. And I was very honored by the fact she did it. She sent me an email. She was so shy. She said, I'm going to do it at Standing Rock. And I said, wow, what an honor. And she did. She said when they did the play, the people there brought out their folding chairs and their sleeping bags, and they formed their own little audience area, and they sat down, and they enjoyed the play. They cheered at the right moment. So they what, got what, now, what was that one about? I... Sneaky, it's about uh, three brothers who steal their mother's body from the morgue and do a traditional burial. This was before, it was written before the Indian Religious Freedom Act. And it was at a time when a lot of Native people didn't really know the ceremonies. 
regarding funerals because they were denied. And uh, it was at a time when, you know, ironically, after I wrote the play, several years later, my mother passed. And she did something at her funeral that was a first time in a long time. She had a pipe ceremony. And she had four former tribal chairmen do the pipe ceremony in her honor. And we didn't have a Catholic priest. We didn't have a priest perform the wake or the funeral. We had a native ceremony. And again, it was her way of showing us that we are native. We haven't changed. So Sneaky is about three brothers who are very diverse, who are completely different from each other. All are archetypes in the native communities. You have the alcoholic. You have the wannabe white man. You have... Uh, the the uh, traditionalist, they, and they have to come together to bury their mother. And the idea comes about of, hey, let's do a traditional burial. And they have to convince each other to do it. And they have to put aside all their pain for one another, all their anger towards one another, and perform this ceremony. And they have to steal the body from the morgue and to perform the ceremony themselves. So that's what Sneaky is all about. Well... And you, and you wrote that before your mother passed. Yeah, yeah. I wrote it because it was part of a way of um, honoring my grandmother because she was raised. Yeah, she by, was. Yeah, she raised you. Yes. Yeah, she was raised by the black robes. Yeah. At an early age, her family abandoned her because she was part black, and so she was raised by the mission school of the black robes. And when you know when she, every. Sunday, well, every week she would do communion, and then she gave money to the church. And unfortunately, and this set, in, in my mind, the impression was that when she passed away, uh, the priest who usually saw her wasn't available, and they sent this young priest to perform the ceremony. He knew nothing about my grandmother, and she had been a devout member of the church for the last 50 years. <laughs> And it was embarrassing to hear him speak about her. And he would stutter, didn't know what to say. And it made the pain, the pain even more. That here's a man that's talking about a woman he knows nothing about, but he's, he's doing it because it's a ritual to him. But it means nothing to him. And that was the other element about Sneaky, is that we have rituals that we should be doing, but some of us have lost that meaning of why we do it. I mean, even simple things, when you call someone a brother, that it's a big acknowledgement. You call someone a sister, that's a big acknowledgement. That's a lot of responsibility you're claiming that, you want, that you're going to take on. And we forget these things. Mm-hmm. And Sneaky was a way of reminding us that there's an importance behind ritual. There's a reason why we do it and not to forget it because, you know, some ceremonies or some holidays in our society today, don't mean anything. We take it for granted. Right. So sneaky was basically a tribute to your grandmother. Yeah. To, to do it right. Right. And it was one of the first plays I've ever written. And it's been published twice. Wow. So to, to you, when you write a play, it's from life experience? Yeah. Yeah, I always, I always find something to connect with, but people are always amazed that I think what they don't understand, 
Being a Native American, we're faced and are put in many challenges. And a lot of these challenges and a lot of these things that we face aren't by our own hand. These are things that we don't go looking for. People have to understand we don't go looking out to be oppressed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, I feel like getting oppressed today. I'm going to go out and confront mm-hmm. someone. Yeah. Or I'm looking for racism today. I want to be discriminated. Who does that? But there's that stupidity that people believe <laughs> that Native people will actually do this. And it's like, no. You know, we want to live. We don't want to survive anymore. We want to live. And so now when we take ownership of these things around us, it upsets people. It upsets to see Native people succeed in this because we're not supposed to. I mean, the reason why I do theater, part of it was that I was always told Indians don't do this. And I did it. But from the life perspective, we've encountered, even in my own life, I mean, if you look at it, I escaped death three times. <laughs> I had a brush with death three times. Uh, I went through the whole alcohol cycle. I've now been alcohol-free for almost 27, 28 years, drug-free. Um, I went through the trauma of violence on the reservation. I've seen murder. I've seen death up close. Uh, people don't understand that, yeah, as a Native person out West, I saw guns all my life. I was raised with guns. But we never considered the idea of taking a gun and using it to shoot someone. The only time we had a rifle, it was to hunt deer or to hunt ducks. It was never about protecting. What protected you, and I think this is what a lot of Native people have forgotten, is not your gun, it's your character. Because historically, people feared us when we had no guns. (laughs) We didn't have guns, and yet we were still feared. But see, these are realities that are now coming forward. Well, even the environment, the fact that I write about environment in all my place because that's essential. But I also am well aware of my reality of the environment. There are places that are no longer available to me. Like I grew up going to Wolf Creek where we would fish, and swim. And the water would be so crystal clear. You could see the trout. You can see turtles. It was alive. And I went back to Wolf Creek about 10 years <clears throat> after I graduated high school. <clears throat> and because of the cattle industry and the black f- backflow of the river, the creek is now muddied and polluted. Yeah, and you that, you know, it. that's, it seems to be like, you know, the, in native uh, stories and whatever. Environment is really, I mean, it's important, it's featured. Um, and I think that's probably what helps Native stories to stand out. Yeah. Well, it's, it's also, if you look at it, Native stories have just this thread of common sense. They promote common sense. Sometimes yeah. people get so bent out of shape. And I think you were telling me, too, at one point, uh, Native stories are horrible they're uh, depressing. And this was a while ago now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Because uh, then they don't always have a happy ending. No, because like life itself, it can be very harsh. That's the reason why when people say American Indians have to smell the coffee, it's like we already know what the coffee smells like and we can make it for you too. 
But the thing is, our reality is we're well aware of how harsh it can be because a lot of our stories, creation stories, can be very harsh. Characters are meet violent ends. And they're very sad, but that's the way life is too. It's a reflection of life. Uh, we don't tell stories of fantasies of escape. We tell stories to show how to live with something, not to run away with it, from it, not to run away from it, but how to live and engage. And that's a big difference. Yeah, and, and you know, and how to survive. That's, yeah. Uh, yeah. So you have written, what's your, and, and, and how many new plays, and the frog play, I know you, you, you mentioned that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's a tough question. I think uh, back in 2016, at the beginning of January, I wrote five new one-act plays. And this year, I wrote one short one-act play. Uh, one Foot In was the first play I wrote. And then <coughs> <excuse me coughs> Frog's Dance was a rewrite. But it was a story that I had been working on for the last, oh, I'd say about 15 years, no, 10 years. I could never get it. I could never get it to work. And Woodbones was another story that I'd been working on. Uh, the production in this university, in Maine production, Woodbones, we actually cut a character out of the script. And Isabella uh, Ito, uh, a young uh, student at the School of Performing Arts, she did a great job with the role because she had major rewrites <laughs> during the rehearsal process. Uh, she would come in, I would give her three new pages, and she went, wow. <laughs> so, And she had to work it and memorize it and did a great job. She was wonderful. Uh, that's because, again, a lot of her scenes were, were changed completely. And a character that uh, she was supposed to, her character was married to a man, and we wrote the man out because we couldn't find a male to cast. Mm. And it was amazing what she did. So Woodbones is relatively new. And Frog's Dance... And when we did it in May, again, that took a lot of rewriting because uh, it was more development towards the characters of Frog himself and his nephew, Elmo. Uh, I always wanted to go back and rework those two characters to form better and tighter and cleaner relationships to show why they needed each other. And this time I was able to accomplish it. But I'm looking at another possible rewrite of that because... But what, it's, what, what is it about Frog's Dance? Uh, Frog's Dance is basically the whole process of passing on to a generation uh, your, the responsibilities of being a member of the tribe. See, that's what people don't understand. Being Native is not only just taking on a name. There are responsibilities that go with your name. Or there's a responsibility that goes with your family because your family has a responsibility to the community. In this case, Frog was a champion dancer, and his parents are going to be honored. His missing parents are going to be honored at the celebration from the community, and they need someone to lead the honor dance. And he's so ashamed of himself because he's been in a car accident, and he lost the use of his body. And he's so ashamed of that fact at the same time, his sister, who's been murdered, had a son that returns to the reservation. And in a vision, she tells Frog to train him to dance. You have to show him how to dance so he can do the dance for our family. 
And Frog is so freaked out by the fact because his body is so damaged, he believes he can't do it. So when Elmo shows up, there's confrontations and also the acceptance of Elmo because he's more, quote-unquote, white in his appearance and his behavior. And people don't think he can do it. And eventually he gets beaten up by a group of uh, a local gang. And so he can't do it, and Frog is forced to do it in the end, but Elmo shows up, and they are able to complete that cycle hmm. of honoring the grandparents. Wow. Are we going to get to see that here? I or? hope so, because one of the things it talks about, about Native identity, it's not just having a card. It's not about just having a card. It's about your relationship with your community. And see, that's the reason why this uh, whole thing of native appropriation, it's just not you claiming, your, you know, yourself claiming to be Indian. The community has to claim you. You have to be a part of the community. You can't be native unless you're part of the community. Uh, I, I don't think it's the color of your skin. Either. No, 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 because Elmo is white looking. Yeah. But see, once he comes in and says, you know, and here's the irony. In my life experience, I've met guys with brown hair, light skin, who were more native than those who looked native, simply because of the fact they knew they had that responsibility to be a member of a community. And that's the, that's the flip side of it. Yeah. And we, like I say, we forget that we have responsibilities along with that name. Yeah. Because then we could have a whole other conversation about blood quantum. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, we're that's the other thing we're trying to work yeah. on a program to do readings of my blood quantum plays through Native American studies in November at the University of Maine. That's still blood in the quantum works. Quantum plays, yeah. Like, uh, the, the, well, like that's the the, the yeah. theory of the plays. Yeah, because in Grandchildren of the Buffalo Soldiers and other untold stories, yeah. all those plays deal with blood quantum. Grandchildren of the Buffalo Soldiers is African-American, Native American relations. Yeah. A stray dog is purely white and native. Uh, Pieces of Us is a more contemporary African-American and Native American duality identification. And it gets really uh, more mixed as you go along because you also see the white connection that's been denied. And then finally... Uh, um, Mixed Blood Seeds, which deals with the historical process of the blood quantum and making enrollment through a family. So I'd like to read scenes and then possibly uh, bring in faculty and students to discuss the whole issue of blood quantum and what it means to them and that's, how it impacts their lives. That's going to be uh, a very, uh, maybe a hot button kind yeah. of issue. It always is. Which, yeah. uh, uh, let me know when that happens. I want to be there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You want to be referee or just a ringside seat? Maybe ringside. Uh, But you, uh, I want to ask you to do a reading of one of your short plays. I'd be honored. On the the air. Uh, The title's Half Truths, but let's do a little background on this. Uh, So tell us uh, how you came to write this short story, short play. There were two concepts working into this play. One was called uh, Lost Sparrows. It's an organization that finds Native kids that were adopted. They were adopted out. They're full-blooded. They're, you know, they're enrolled, but they were put up for adoption before the Indian Child Welfare Act. They were sent off. And eventually they return and people go, who are you? 
And they go through, they have to go through all the pettiness of, well, they want to get enrolled, you know, they're not one of us. And it's like, they are, but they don't have our card, but they are a part of the nation. They were taken from us, and now they've come back. So let's not worry about opening up our enrollments, but let's worry about opening up our hearts and bringing them back. So that's part of Half-Truth, the play we're going to read. The other was that um, the character himself uh, was adopted out and had, if you will, uh, uh, challenges, mental challenges. And so he was institutionalized, but because of fundings regarding mental, mental institutions and health care, he was bounced around, so eventually he winds up in an old folks' home on the res. This is based on a true situation, partially true. true. Yeah, Yeah. that's the other thing, too. I don't name names. (laughs) For their own humility, I don't want to embarrass people, but they're based on sometimes on several different real people I've met in my life. Yeah, I mean, you just didn't make this up. No. Uh Yeah. Okay. So um, we we can start... Um, and I'll just read the stage directions okay. as we go. And yeah. Okay, so this, this should be fun. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, um, all right. So the, the characters of this, it's called Half-Truth by William S. Yellowrobe, Jr. Uh, Raymond, a man in his early 50s, he is dressed in tattered clothes. He listens to the sounds in the room and in the home. Raymond sits at a metal institutional-type table. There are three empty chairs around the table, a coffee cup, old magazines, and a tablet are on the table. Raymond is sitting quietly. No one is crying. There's no one crying this morning. It's going to be a good day. Sometimes at least two people are crying. Joe Randall is always crying in the morning. Really sad. He isn't doing well. He misses his family. I heard when white people don't love their family, they put them in places like this. Uh Uh-huh. I was told that at the last house I stayed. They said it was true. I'm here because I'm half an Indian. Otherwise, I'd be in a different place. This place is run by the tribes and county. So because I'm half and half, I can stay here. Takes the tablet and writes on a page. I'm thankful I'm an Indian. Yeah, that's a good one. Begins to write. Wait, no, yeah. I'm an Indian, but... Oh, I'm not a full blood. No, I, I, I don't know if I can. I'm a uh, half if I'm not a full blood. I don't know if they would allow me to stay. Art might not want me to stay. say that. Art's the other Indian here. He says his grandfather was a full blood and a chief. The thing is, is when we go out, sometimes we go to Indian dances. None of the Indians will talk to him. They say, he says, they are jealous of him. He says, he'll tell me 
who the real Indians are and who aren't. Some told me he isn't Indian. I think he is. He tells me because I'm part colored, it isn't that bad, so I can say I'm only part Indian. Art knows a lot. I know he knows a lot because he's always talking. He always has something to say. Like the time when the bathroom backed up, Art told all of us that Mother Earth didn't want our poison in her and sent it back to us. He made that sound real Indian. That's what all the aides said. They said, that sounds real Indian, Art. I told Gene, my younger brother, what Art said, and he told me it sounded like a lot of BS to him. Oh, that's one. Writes on tablet. I'm glad, happy. No, I'm glad the toilets are working. Checking his list and writing. Art went home for the holidays. He told me Indian families don't leave their relatives in places like this. He said it was good medicine to be home with your family during the holidays. I don't know. I've always been in, in a home like this because they are my home. My brother Gene, he found me here. He said he heard he had a brother at, at this place. I didn't tell him, but someone told him. I was put up for adoption a long time ago. When I was a little kid, they took me for adoption. I don't know if I'm going to write that one down. I came back a few years ago. Yeah, it wasn't that long ago they brought me back here. At my other home, the home I lived at before this one, they said, Raymond, you're going to go live with your Indian family. Okay, I said. It was a long bus ride here. It was kind of fun. Long time, though. I sat in back of the bus. I didn't want to have people look at me. You know, people always have that funny look at me when they see me. I thought I would sleep for the bus trip. After the second day, the bus started to smell like the bus's restroom. Someone brought a bottle of alcohol in the bus. It rolled back and forth for a couple of stops. The bus driver stopped the bus and picked up the bottle. He gave me that funny look, but didn't say anything to me. I can write that one down. Begins to write. I'm glad the bus driver didn't hate me and blame me for the empty bottle of wine. Stops writing. Gene's my baby brother. I love him. I, I never told him that. I don't think I have to. He knows it. Me, Art, and some others, they took us to the dance at the community hall. It was an Indian dance. Art told me how we were going to finally see some real Indians. He said they were his people. He told me I should watch everything so I would learn to be an Indian. We sat in the bleachers. We all we were all in a group. Oh, I like Indian tacos. Begins to write. I'm glad for Indian tacos. No onions, but lots of beans and cheese. 
stops writing. The announcer said, All you visitors come out to the dance floor and we're going to have our round dance. I didn't know what he meant. I didn't know he meant us. Art grabbed my coat and said, Come on, Ray, go. I was scared. All these pretty things the dancers wear. I didn't want to bump into them or ruin them for them. We got out there on the floor. I had I had this young, pretty Indian girl next to me, holding me and smiling at me. On my right hand was this young guy in a baseball cap. The drumming started and the man started to sing. I didn't know how to dance, but the guy next to me said, watch me. I washed his feet and then I looked at the girl's feet. She was wearing some real pretty moccasins. We we were all moving in the same step. I really like that. Oh, another one. Begins to write. I'm glad for the round dance. Stops writing. When the dance was done, I was going back to sit in the bleachers. The young Indian guy who was holding my hand turned me to face him. Where are you going, big brother? Gene! This is Gene, my baby brother! All this time, all this time, too, and, and the girl next to me, my niece Sylvie, we danced all long. I danced for my family, danced to my new home. He starts to write. I'm glad for my family. He stops writing. Later on, Art tried to tell me Gene couldn't be my brother because he looks more Indian than me. Art said to me that I look more like a colored than my little brother. I told him, no, Gene's my brother. He asked me if Gene was part colored like me. I told him he must be if he's my brother. Art kept on saying, Gene isn't my brother. I told Art to ask Gene the next time he came to visit. He did. So Gene was put on probation for hitting Art. I wish Gene hadn't, didn't do that. Uh, Art kept screaming how if the AIDS went there, he would kick Gene's butt. He kept calling Gene a, a nigger. He would call Gene a nigger and look at me. He kept doing this for a long time. I grabbed him by the collar and I lifted him up. I couldn't grab him by the top of his head, his head because he has no hair. I told him to stop it. He did. I'm on probation now. And I have to stay away from art. He begins to write. I'm glad I have to stay away from art. Stops writing. Gene told me he wants me to live with him and his family. I don't know. I don't know. I'm kind of, you know, scared. I've never been with a family. I'm really scared. I've never been with a family. Never for me. Gene said I can wait and think about it, but it's really scary for me. It took me a long time to be half an Indian and then half black. And this is a big change for me. I don't know if I can do it. I was always told and thought I didn't have any family, and now I have Gene. It's like having half a truth, and it turns into a whole truth. He begins to write. I'm glad I'm half Indian. 
I am half black and that now a full family member. Blackout. Great. Thank you. So this was, uh, this was written about Ray- Raymond, the person who was part black and part native. Yeah. And yet was mentally um, challenged. Right. And was that part of the reason that he was put into a home because he was mentally challenged? Or Yeah, it was that. And then also uh, for people of color, they get institutionalized for all the oddest reasons, even though they shouldn't be institutionalized. Some of them were. Uh, growing up in school, a lot of kids were put into special education because we were difficult. I was one of them. <laughs> I wound up in special ed because... Difficult? Of, yeah, I can't imagine. Yeah. <laughs> but I was declared difficult, and so they put me in a special ed class for about six weeks, and I think it was my father that came to the school and finally said, get him out. And I was put back into general population, if you will. <laughs> That's the only way to describe it, but... That's what happened quite a bit because um, non-natives didn't really know how to deal with native people. They still don't. And because that we've lived so closely to them, they they believe we share their same hates and fears and we don't. I mean, it's always amazing to me when people come up to me and talk about closing the southern border and my response is, why? Those are my relatives. Why would I want to keep them out? And they don't. they can't comprehend that. Well, we didn't keep them out, did we? No, unfortunately. <laughs> no, well, that, that, you see, that's the other reality. Mm. We've always had an open house for everybody. The world has come here. Whether we wanted them or not, we've always made room for people. I mean, it's ironic that every once in a while, like when I was in Providence, I had non-Indian people, white people, come up to me and ask me if... We could help them get land so they could start a community garden. And I thought, why are you asking me? I'm not even from here. But you're an Indian. You would know how to do that. I went, no, I I don't know what your zoning laws are here. And Go to your mayor. Ask him if he can turn over some, some land or something. But it's amazing that they turn to us for everything in reality. Mm, really? Um, so you're... Uh you're you're gonna you're doing another project, right? Coming up in um, was it November? You're working yeah. on? Yeah. What I'm hoping to do is to help local native playwrights here, and we're going to take their plays and do a day of reading at the University of Maine uh, for short native one act plays, including yours, hopefully, and then Nick Bear and Stephanie Mitchell from the Penobscot Nation. And then my play, and these are short one-act plays that run anywhere between 15 to a half hour, and do it at the University of Maine. And then a second day, hopefully at the Penobscot Theater Company. I've been talking to Amy Rader about that possibility, and that might happen, so I'm looking forward to having two days of reading. Yeah, and you've got something coming up. Um, Oh, yeah, this is that uh, new Native Theater Festival in August, about the third week, they're producing my play One, one Step, well, yeah, one, one Foot In. Also, Nick Bear from here is in that playwriting festival. But they're all native playwrights from the surrounding area and across the country, uh, short 10-minute pieces. What's Nick's play about? I... Uh, it's about a breakup. 
okay. <laughs> it's about a young couple that breaks up. It's really tight. I was really mm-hmm. glad that he wrote it because uh, it was very, very tightly written. It's a really strong piece. But it's, uh, I think he gave me eight pages of it. I don't know what what the present form of that play is, but mm-hmm. it was selected. Which is great. Out of how many, you think? How many? Oh, she put the call out, and actually uh, the artistic director, Rihanna Yazzie, was hosting several workshops during that time. She was doing a technician's workshop, an actor's workshop, and then she was working with local playwrights and helping them get their plays prepared for submission. So I don't know. I imagine they probably got close to 500 different submissions from natives because like Michael Nephew, who's on this, he's from Washington, D.C. There's another playwright from D.C., Minneapolis. They're all from the surrounding areas and across the country. So half of these playwrights I know, the other half are new to me. Well, like J. Uh, P. Musket, he was teaching playwriting at the Institute of American Indian Arts last year, and he made it into the festival. And I think he's living in New Mexico or he's living, I can't remember where he's working out of now. But like I say, he was teaching at the Institute of American Indian Arts and he's a part of it. And then Andrea Fairbanks, she was in last year and she's a great one woman a performance artist. She does great pieces. So it's nice to see her back. So and this is taking place in, where is it, Minnesota? Yeah, Minneapolis, Minnesota or St. Paul. At the, what, Gremlin Theater? Is that what that is? Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's pretty neat that, you know, that uh, uh, native Penobscot going to be in yeah. that. <laughs> How about that? Well, you know, what's amazing is that, <clears throat> you know, 15 years ago, you never seen anything like this. You would never see a native festival run by native people. It was rare. And in this case, this is really community-oriented and it's generated and it's not a question of status or having a title. It's a question of doing something for the community, and that's what Rihanna's been doing. Uh, she said something to me last year in a conversation that was very pleasing. She said, I'm not worried about what a non-Native audience will think of the work. I don't care anymore. And I thought, wow, that's really great. That's very bold. So when she does it, she's doing it for the Native audiences. She doesn't care about yeah, I think that's probably what's what's missing from theater in general now is that, you know, if Native people did their plays, their, their stories, uh, and told them, I, I think I think it would be well-received uh, because these are stories that haven't been heard. Right. And, it's, you know, there's stories and voices that haven't been heard, but also it's a different perspective. Right. I mean, I had to, a chance two years ago, to write a short piece for the Arena uh, Theater in Washington, D.C. They did this presentation called Our, uh, was it Our War or Our Stories? It was based on the Civil War, plays about the Civil War, ideas about the Civil War, and I submitted a monologue and was presented in the reading. And basically my monologue stated that in this presentation, Again, Native people are involved in a war that wasn't theirs and were asked to choose sides. And you had Native nations fighting both on the Confederate and Union side. Both were given promises and none of them were kept on both sides. And none of those promises, and it's part of the legacy of dealing with America. 
But we were involved in that, and people don't remember that we were involved in the Civil War. Our history, again, is completely forgotten in that period. Yeah, I mean, I think we've been, we've had, we've participated in every war since the Revolutionary War. Yeah, either we were considered citizens or we were considered mercenaries, but we fought for the Americans for so many. That's the reason why when people say, well, you never fought, and it's like you really don't understand history. You don't know your history. Right. And that seems to be part of the problem right now. People have forgotten their history. That's for sure. So, you know, I was... I heard about this is kind of a little bit off subject. Okay. But uh, this thing about when when uh, Oscar Eustace mm-hmm. in the public theater, and you know what I'm going to say, right? He he, he did that uh, the show in in oh uh, bloody bloody Andrew Jackson. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, what was your what do you think? It was really sad. Uh, to give you an example, for two reasons. One, when that was released, there was an outrage by the Native community because the information was wrong in the play. The Indian chiefs were wrong, uh, misquotes, everything. And the playwrights, or the playwright and the uh, lyricists promised they would change before it went to Broadway, and they never did. So it was horrible to begin with. But what happened was that the local Native community, led by uh, Diane Fryer at Emerinda, and then Spider Woman, Muriel, Lisa, and Gloria Miguel, they were all there to protest the play. Ironically, there was a Native advisory board working for Oscar at the public theater, and those members said nothing. They remained silent. And it was kind of ironic because there was a young woman that, that emailed me Well, she appears to be young, but she's actually old. And she emailed me saying, you have to talk with Oscar. And I asked her, I said, where are you doing this from? She said, so-and-so's office. I said, well, you're right there at the public. Why doesn't she say anything? I said, I'm here in Boston at Brigham and Women. I have had a major heart failure. I don't know if I'm going to live. (laughs) And now you want me to fight this fight? And there's no way I can do it. So that was kind of the irony of it, but it was sad because uh, Oscar did try to reprimand it. He did uh, he tried to make amends. He brought in the Native community to talk about it, but those who were the most vocal and actually took a stand at that time had nothing to do with his advisory board. They were community members. And this was about this was about Andrew Jackson. Jackson. Yeah. Did it make what did it? Make him look like Jackson. It made him look like a hero, but, you know, it took the whole trail of tears and made it into a joke. Mm -hmm. They try to belittle it. It's like making uh, the Holocaust experience of the Jews trying to make it into a punchline. And it only works if you're a Nazi. Wow. Hmm. Well, Oscar's (laughs) done some pretty controversial stuff. Oh, yeah. But you know the thing about uh, the Donald Trump piece of Julius Caesar? Ah, yes. (laughs) But it was done again two years before, but instead of Trump, they used Obama. That's right. And no one complained. 
So you see, there's a hypocrisy that we have as to who we come to defend. But you know, everybody was complaining, well, you're talking about President Trump. But, you know, two years ago, they said the same thing about Obama. There was a production at the Guthrie where Julius Caesar was Obama and was assassinated on stage. But no one said anything. There was no outcry then. But like I say, there's so many double standards in this country. We forget our history immediate history. And I'm not talking living in the past. I mean, just two years ago, <laughs> we forget. I mean, you know, it's like Michelle Obama. Everybody complained about her bare arms in her photographs. She didn't have sleeves on. Everybody was complaining about it. And then look at the photographs of Melanie, Melani, yeah. Trump on the internet. I mean, yeah. you know, completely different, but no outcry, no complaints. And that's the tragedy. Of it. It's a double standard. So I know that you've done a lot of uh, uh, writing and theater work, and um, and I think that um, one of your goals is to actually create a native theater here in Maine. Mm-hmm. How's is that? How's that working? I mean, is that? Well, every time I try to get started, something pulls me away. Uh, like I say, within the last five years or the last eight years, I almost died three times. And, you know, this last one was a major upheaval of my life. Right. And the other thing that's that I'm missing is that the resources I collected get scattered. And so now I have to reorganize and restructure. Again. Yes, yeah. starting from ground zero. I mean, uh, this year... The beginning of January, my biggest concern was how am I going to pay the rent and how am I going to get food and how am I going to get gas for our car? Uh, I had so many of the smaller concerns that were not taken care of, and that's, that was terrifying. And then the other aspect was, am I going to live in this wheelchair for the rest of my life? That was one of the other concerns I have. And now that I have a prosthetic, the question is now learning how to walk again. And that's an ongoing process. But, see, theater takes a back seat again. But I'm still... Yeah, it's, for some strange reason, even the, in this like <laughs> Michael Corleone, every time I try to get out, they pull me back in. That's the way theater is. Every time I try to get out, I get pulled back in again. And it's amazing because some of my experiences have been really good since uh, the surgery. Uh, you know, I've been very blessed that I've had good friends and family watching over me this time, you know, that was the saving grace. Yeah. Is that I had a lot of good friends and relatives that just took care of me and watched me. And that's what helped me survive that near-death experience. Because people don't understand when I say near-death. I mean, when I went into the hospital to the emergency room, the surgeon looked at me and she told me that if we don't remove your foot, you're going to die in 24 hours because this is gangrene gas. And it's in your leg, and it's working its way up to your knee. So I was terrified, and she said, you know, she looked at me, what do you want to do? And I said, remove it, take it. Yeah. And there was no bargaining because she said later, she told me that sometimes people will often bargain, you know, oh, just take part of the foot, save part of the foot. She said, we can't save it. It's all over your foot. It's in your foot. So it had to go. And... You know, later on, I heard from other doctors that treated me earlier that said that they didn't think I would survive. 
that's how bad it was. They didn't think I would survive, and I was in tremendous pain. So, yeah. well, not only did you survive, but uh, well, was it like was less than a month or so afterwards you were down at the uh, University of uh, New England and University yeah. of Southern <laughs> yeah. Maine directing yeah. the readings of my uh, play. I mean, <laughs> you, you were still in a wheelchair. Yeah. So you know what? I got to hand it to you. <laughs> I was in a wheelchair and an amp shield. I remember yeah. that. <laughs> You're a survivor in the pouring rain. Yeah. You're out there. Yeah. So yeah. The, the moral of the story is we shall survive. And yes. We will, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, I, I, just, I just think that you've done, uh, you know, amazingly. Thank you've you. recovered very well, and uh, you're walking around now when you're prosthetic, and uh, so you're doing, you're doing great. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, you got probably about a minute or so, uh, Bill, with... There's any parting remarks you want to make, or yeah, I think uh, you know one of the things I've never done is that I want to thank the Penobscot Indian Health Service for their work because they were the ones that saved me. All all uh, of the two times I had a near death experience, it was the staff of Indian Health Service that helped and got me to the right sources and made it possible for me to heal. Had it not been for them, I wouldn't have made it. So the Indian Health Services at uh, Penobscot Tribe, Penobscot Nation, I want to give them a shout-out and a big thank you for what they did. I also want to thank the medical staff at Eastern Maine for the work they did and the, the surgeon who took the time to look at me and say, I can do this. Uh, I want to thank Hanger Clinic for providing the prosthetic that made it possible for me to walk again. I want to thank Margot Lukens for all her help. I want to thank you for your help. I want to thank Darren Ranko. I want to thank, uh, and most importantly, too, my wife, uh, Jeannie, for standing by me all this time and for basically helping me get through. So all, for all those people, Pinamia or Wuliwani, thank you. All right. Well, thank you uh, for being with us, Bill. And uh, thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Donna Loring. You've been listening to Webinaki Windows. The music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles, from his CD, Dreamwalk. I uh, also want to thank our engineer, Amy Brown. Please join us again next month for another Webinaki Windows. <laughs>